service. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, Discos, I've got something special for you guys. You asked, we listened, and now it's finally here. Introducing Disgraceland All Access, our very first official membership program. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow Discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership and sign up today. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Wu-Tang Clan's master killer are insane. He grew up in a city shaped and run by organized crime. A city where the most powerful underworld boss could be gunned down on a busy street in the middle of the day. But despite his menacing stage name, Master Killer was not a killer. He was, however, a master. A master of subtlety and of life lived discreetly. He kept his family history and his relationship to soul legend Marvin Gaye a secret for decades. When drug dealers and gang members flipped for the feds and spilled dirt on Wu-Tang Clan, Mastakilla's name was kept out of their testimony. When a music journalist accused him of assault, he denied it. But no one could deny the great music that Mastakilla made. In a group full of big personalities and even bigger egos, he became, unexpectedly, one of the greatest. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Sashay Downstairs MK2. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Burn by Usher. And why would I play you that specific slice of pool-on-fire cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on June 1st, 2004. And that was the day that Master Killa released his long-awaited solo debut album, more than a decade after Wu-Tang's debut, and just one month before the FBI took their investigation of the group into an entirely new direction. On this episode, New Directions, a menacing stage name, organized crime, Gang members, assault, and Wu Tang Clan's master killer. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Paul Castellano, 
acting boss of the Gambino family, one of the original five families in the Italian-American Mafia, AKA La Cosa Nostra, lived on Staten Island in a 10,000 square foot mansion that the locals called the White House. Specifically, the White House was located on Benedict Road in a neighborhood known as Tote Hill. Tote Hill was exclusive. Tote Hill was expensive. Tote Hill was elevated, literally. At 400 feet, it was not only the highest point in all five boroughs, Tote Hill was the highest point on the entire eastern coast south of the state of Maine. This was the other Staten Island. Though it was only a 10-minute drive from the projects in Park Hill or Stapleton, Tote Hill may as well have been in another universe. But for kids from those nearby projects, it was a universe that was theoretically attainable. You could see it with your own eyes. You could walk through it. You could touch it and smell it. You could even imagine yourself sitting in the White House. And why not? Paul Castellano wasn't all that different from you. He was just another hustler, another disciple of the streets. Some wise-ass punk from Bensonhurst who dropped out of the eighth grade and learned the numbers racket. A kid who went to prison at age 19 for armed robbery. And now look at him, elevated up in Toad Hill. As far back as any Staten Island kids struggling with no money and no prospects can remember, they always wanted to be Paul Castellano. And I'm not even talking specifically about organized crime here. I'm talking about the ability to visualize a future for yourself that isn't one that has been assigned to you by the rigid confines of society. I'm talking about subverting expectations, about changing your reality, about becoming somebody new. Paul Castellano was not just the boss, he was a boss. And his story was an inspiration to many growing up in the so-called forgotten borough. But not everyone shared a romanticized view of Paul Castellano. Some within the Gambino family didn't think he deserved to be at the head of the table. Anilio Neil Delacroach, for one, was offended when Castellano was appointed boss following the death of longtime patriarch Carlo Gambino some nine years prior in 1976. It split the family right down the middle, and so did the trial that was currently taking place in federal district court. Castellano and nine others were accused of conspiring to commit murders in order to cover up a car theft ring. The rift got wider when Delacroach died in 85. Castellano didn't even show up to pay his respects at the guy's wake. And then Castellano had the balls to appoint his own bodyguard, Thomas Bellotti, as underboss. And that was enough for those on Delacroach's side to finally take matters into their own hands, including a young capo named John Gotti. December 16, 1985, Midtown Manhattan, 5.26 p.m. Foot traffic on East 46th was dense. New York City was in the holiday spirit, which is to say it was chaos. Nine to fivers scrambled to catch the train. Their speedy efforts were thwarted by hordes of tourists walking at a frustratingly slow pace. Shopping bags dangling from their hands and Christmas lights reflecting in their eyes. In the midst of this commotion, a black Lincoln limousine pulled up in front of Sparks Steakhouse and parked. Paul Castellano, 70 years old and free on $2 million bail, stepped out of the passenger side in a sharp blue suit. 
His bodyguard turned underboss Thomas Bellotti stepped from the driver's side. Out of the bustling crowd, three men emerged. They wore trench coats. They walked with purpose in Castellano's direction. The street noise muffled their footsteps and the cover of darkness cloaked their intent. As they approached, their stride quickly turned into a sprint. Castellano and Bellotti saw them and knew what was coming. They were wise guys, not wise men. They weren't carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they pulled out semi-automatic pistols from deep inside their coats. And there was no time for Castellano to get back in the car or take cover. He braced for the worst, and the three men opened fire. Shots rang out, and pedestrians screamed and ducked for cover. Bellotti was hit six times, and he fell to the pavement on his back, bleeding from a head wound, dead and the car keys were just inches from his outstretched and lifeless hand. Castellano, meanwhile, took a spray of bullets to the head and upper body. He fell backwards into the Lincoln through the open door, and one of the assassins pointed his pistol point-blank at Castellano and fired again, killing him, Castellano's head falling onto the limo seat as his legs and feet went limp on the ground. Then, the three men ran down East 46th to 2nd Avenue past dozens of strangers, all trying to look and not look at the same time, where a car was idling, waiting for them. They jumped inside it, and within seconds, they were gone. John Gotti was no one's disciple. He was a wild card, a loose cannon. He took control of the Gambino family the old-fashioned way, by assassinating the boss. And the whole thing was operatic. And it had operatic themes like power, loyalty, brotherhood, and betrayal. The same themes that could be found in the kung fu movies that were near and dear to the Riz's heart and served as building blocks for his hip-hop collective Wu-Tang Clan. And just like kung fu cinema, the trials and tribulations of the New York Mafia were a constant in Wu-Tang's world. It was unavoidable, the violence, the corruption. It ran through New York City streets like blood through an artery and it burrowed deep into their imaginations. Years later, when Wu-Tang wanted to get into that mafioso frame of mind like they did on a track called Wu Gambinos from Raekwon's Only Built for Cuban Links album, they did it not literally, but with their imagination. They did it with a new layer of alter egos. Ghostface Killer became Tony Starks. Raekwon was Lex Diamond, AKA Lou Diamond. Inspector Deck was Raleigh Fingers, and the RZA was Bobby Seals. You God became Golden Arms. And Elgin Turner, AKA Jamil Arif, the man the world knew as Master Killer, was called Noodles. Noodles being the name of Robert De Niro's character in Sergio Leone's gangster epic Once Upon a Time in America, which just so happened to be a Wu-Tang certified cult classic. But young Master Killer, AKA young Elgin here, was no gangster. Unlike John Gotti, Master Killer wasn't an actual killer. Also, unlike John Gotti, Master Killer was a disciple. He was the last to join the clan. He wasn't even an MC, but he wanted to be one. He wanted to be an assassin on the mic. More than that, he wanted to live in the elevated world, the one he could see, hear, taste. An elevated world of body, mind, and spirit. Master Killer sat at the feet of Wu-Tang Clan, a disciple ready to be molded and ask them, make me invincible.
Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. The name Master Killer comes from the 1978 Kung Fu film, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin also known as the Master Killer or Shaolin Master Killer. In that film, legendary martial arts actor Gordon Liu plays a student who seeks revenge against an oppressive government that squashed an uprising at his school and murdered his friends and family. But before he gets his revenge, he must train. So the student goes to the Shaolin Temple to learn Kung Fu, and in doing so, works his way through all 35 of the temple's chambers. Each chamber focuses on a different strength. Arms, wrists, broadsword techniques, balance, eyesight, and so on. Spoiler alert, the student aces all 35 chambers and then proclaims that he wants to create a 36th chamber. A chamber where ordinary people, just like him, can learn Kung Fu in order to defend themselves against their evil oppressors. And by giving the people the skills and the power they need to stand up for themselves, the student's vengeance pays dividends. The 36th Chamber of Shaolin is one of many kung fu films to inform Wu-Tang Clan's identity, style, and philosophy. It's also one of the most important. The film's title gave them part of their debut album's title, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, as well as the concept of Shaolin as a half-physical, half-spiritual world in which Wu-Tang exists. The film's plot was also Wu-Tang's plot, at least at the outset. An underdog rises from nothing to something, masters his craft, and defies the powers that be. But in order to do that, the underdog has to learn a lot. To become the master killer, the underdog has to start over. Which is what Wu-Tang's master killer, Elgin Turner, did in 1992. Elgin, then in his early 20s, already had wisdom. He got that from talking about supreme mathematics and playing chess with his friend Gary Grice, AKA the Jizza. Elgin and Jizza were serious about the 5% and even more serious about chess. They played time matches. You had to think hard and think fast. And if your time ran out, the game was over. Life was like chess. 
Every minute of every day, make your move and punch the clock. Listen twice before you speak once. Born in Brooklyn in 1969, Elgin spoke only when necessary. He didn't tell the other kids in the neighborhood about the places he went to, the planes he boarded, the miles he clocked. He was raised as an only child by a single mother who worked hard, and that hard work paid off and paid for the trips the two of them were able to take together. No one knew anything about this part of Elgin's life, just like no one knew that he was related to both Nat Turner and Marvin Gaye, a fact that it seemed nobody knew about until it was revealed in the 2019 Wu-Tang documentary, but I digress. And this was the way he liked it, incognito. He blended in. He wasn't better than anyone else. He did what others were doing, like drop out of school. And he soon realized that that was the wrong move. That was like moving the pawn that guards a castle king. So in an effort to get his life back on track as a young adult, Elgin enrolled in a program to get both his high school diploma and his bachelor's degree all in one shot. Night school was a grind. Sometimes he couldn't muster the energy to go. He quickly racked up two absences and was warned that a third would mean his expulsion. He thought about this on the night that the Jizza invited him to the studio. Jizza and Rizza had this new thing called Wu-Tang and they were about to cook up a new track. Elgin should come hang. And the temptation was strong, but Elgin thought about his need to get back on track, about the consequence of a third absence. And he thought about chess, the right moves and the wrong moves. He told Jizza he couldn't make it, and he got himself to class. The next day during their regular chess game, Jizza played Elgin the track they had recorded the night before. Check this out, Jizza said. It's called Protect Your Neck. Elgin's jaw hit the floor, the energy, the beat, the onslaught of wide-ranging rhyming styles from Inspected Deck, Raekwon, Method Man, You Got, OBD, Ghostface, The Rizza, The Jizza. It was new, fresh, raw, it was something that hadn't existed in hip-hop until that moment. Elgin knew it was going to be huge from the moment the track ended. He also knew that he wanted to be a part of it. But he'd never written a rhyme in his life. And nevertheless, he was inspired. He put pen to paper, and the words in his head tumbled into his fingers, were absorbed by the ink, and then spilled out onto the page. He read what he had, and then he rewrote it. Again, and again, he refined it. Again. And then he shared what he had written with Jizza. Jizza was impressed. Elgin had something here. A perfect verse. A verse so perfect that it became Elgin's first contribution to Wu-Tang as Master Killer. It became his verse on the track The Mystery of Chess Boxing from Wu-Tang's debut album. Hold on. Just imagine the team you're about to go play for is already stacked with all-stars. Jackie Robinson, Joe DiMaggio, Reggie Williams, and you come along and you got no rep, you got no history in the game, you've never even taken a swing before. All you got is this one verse. Imagine how nerve-wracking that would be. That was the situation Master Killer found himself in. His first verse was his first chamber in Shaolin land. And true to his name, he killed it. He learned fast, and he wanted to learn more. He was ready to be a full-time student, but not at night school. Elgin Turner, soon to be better known as Master Killer, decided then and there to become a student of hip-hop and a disciple of Wu-Tang. And he was never going back to school again. Yo, man, you Cheo? 
Chao Coker was barely able to respond before the fist hit his face, right cross to his left eye. Chao wobbled backwards, his eyes stung like hell. And the guy who hit him followed up the punch with a few choice words. That's just to let you know, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. We come real with our shit. We're not cartoon characters. Then he took the tape recorder out of Cheo's hand and walked off. In May 1994, music journalist Cheo Coker alleged that he was assaulted out of the blue by Wu-Tang Clan's mass tequila. Cheo had just written a profile on the group for Rap Pages magazine, and Wu-Tang never showed up for the accompanying photo shoot and the magazine couldn't run the story without art. So Rap Pages was forced to make a decision. Either kill the article or hire an artist to draw members of Wu-Tang and they chose the latter. The artist's caricatures were whack. Jizza was rendered as a valedictorian nerd, and Raekwon the chef was pictured as a literal chef at a barbecue grill. ODB was holding a blow-up doll, and maybe someone with a better sense of humor about themselves would have let it fly, but Wu-Tang, at this point ruling the hip-hop world, were dead serious about what they did. They wanted everyone else to take them seriously too, and this shit just made them look corny. Even Chao thought the cartoons were corny, but Chao didn't draw the cartoons. They weren't even his idea. He was just a freelance writer who provided the copy. Wu-Tang didn't know that, or if they did know, they didn't care. Chao was guilty by association. But here's the thing, Master Killa denies ever punching Chao Coker, says it wasn't him, and given his reserved, listen twice and speak once kind of demeanor, it does seem a little out of character. Chao, on the other hand, said he had receipts. In an editorial he later wrote for The Source magazine, Chao showed a $60 check he received from Wu-Tang production shortly after the incident, which he never cashed. Written on the memo line was, quote, for repayment of radio and tape, unquote. In that same editorial, he revealed that two weeks after the assault, Mastakilla personally called him to apologize. Mastakilla has maintained that this is all bullshit and that he's never had any conversations of the sort with Cheo. And perhaps he's telling the truth. Perhaps he didn't punch a journalist. Or maybe Mastakilla, ever the student, ever Wu-Tang's disciple, was putting to good use an important lesson he'd learned in one of the many proverbial chambers in which he trained. Remember, this was back in 94 and there were no cell phones, no Nest cameras watching from the corner of the room. It was just one man's word against another's. One lowly freelance writer versus an almighty clan. They say you're born twice in this life. First, physically, through the womb, and then again, mentally, through Allah's supreme mathematics. Mastakilla and his Wu-Tang brothers, however, were born a third time when they took on their hip-hop personas. They were born anew, but they weren't born yesterday. Wu-Tang was in charge of their own narrative, and that narrative was Wu-Tang is not a corny joke. Wu-Tang does not tune up writers. They were the ones who said what they were and what they weren't. But not everyone believed them. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The FBI agent knew they were close. It wasn't a matter of if, but when the feds would finally take down Wu-Tang Clan. He could see it so clearly in his mind's eye. RZA, Jizza, Ghostface, Method Man, Master Killer, 
all nine of those dudes, plus their close associate, Capadonna, in handcuffs. Perp walking right into a jet black suburban. Cameras flashing and reporters craning their necks to get one soundbite, one quote, but only receiving a standoffish no comment through gritted teeth. Feds, one. Wu-Tang, zero. The headline in the Times would be something like, Wu-Tang Clan convicted of running guns, ordering murders. Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with, huh? The agent chuckled. We'll see about that. The FBI had laid bare this confidence in a 1999 internal memo which read in part, It is believed that did sometimes carry out enforcement actions for the Wu-Tang Clan, which include beatings, shootings, and murder. This belief and this confidence were due largely to a couple of aces the feds now had in their back pocket. The first of which was Paul Ford, AKA Uncles, one-time drug dealer, now singing like a canary. Uncles told the FBI everything, like how when a member of the Bloods named Jerome Estrella, AKA Boo Boo, first got out of the joint, he fucked up by robbing Riz's little brother. Estrella knew they were coming after him for what he'd done. And by they, Uncles insisted, Estrella meant Wu-Tang. Whoever was after Estrella sent a local gang member named Brian Humphreys to do the dirty work. On June 20th, 1999, Humphreys pulled the trigger and filled Estrella with lead. But now, Brian Humphreys was in police custody, and just like his pal, Uncles, was desperate to soften the blow that he was about to receive from the strong arm of the law. So he also turned informant for the government and thus represented the Fed's second ace. Uncles and Humphreys had the details of a second murder. Corey Brooker, AKA Shankbank, killed just days after Estrella. Word had it Brooker was the only one who had ordered the robbery of Riz's kid brother in the first place, and that he had also robbed a cousin of Raekwon, another Wu-Tang member, and that furthermore, in retaliation, Riza put out a $30,000 contract on Brooker's head. Someone took the money and then carried out the hit. After Estrella and Brooker were killed, Uncles, according to his testimony, relayed the information to a close confidant within the Wu-Tang camp. And that close confidant's response, what happened, was supposed to happen. Hardly an admission of guilt. Besides, it's not unlikely that a gang member turned stool pigeon would say whatever they had to say in order to take some of the weight off of themselves. For all the FBI knew, Uncles and Humphreys had nothing but hot gossip. But for a long time, the FBI really believed what they were being told. The agent couldn't deny that the intel fit the Bureau's narrative, or perhaps it fit what the Bureau wanted the narrative to be, a narrative that included 16 legitimate businesses laundering dirty money, mafia worship and Wu Gambino waking fantasies. The RZA, capable of attempted murder, Ghostface Killa, with an unlicensed weapon in a bulletproof vest. Capadonna, getting cozy with a wannabe gangster. Inspector Deck and you God slinging dope. And whatever happened to be old Dirty Bastard's transgression of the week. Dirty made it a little too clean for the FBI. He had no filter. He didn't hide anything. Dirty was so compelling to law enforcement that eventually he became their primary focus. A guy like Mastakilla, on the other hand, was the complete opposite he kept his life real close to the vest. His narrative was clean. His name was out of the papers. He wasn't flashy. He listened twice and spoke once. And although he had one of the most murderous names of the entire clan, 
he never blurred the line between art and life like ODB. Over time, the feds didn't even look at Master Killer twice. Many Wu-Tang fans didn't either. Master Killer wasn't using the Wu-Tang platform to catapult into the entertainment industry. He wasn't scoring Jim Jarmusch movies like RZA, and he wasn't acting in major motion pictures like Method Man. He was, however, quietly making his mark, like a trained assassin working under the cover of darkness. His presence loomed increasingly large over the studio albums Wu-Tang Forever, The W, and Iron Flag. He guested on Wu-Tang solo joints, but he took his time putting out his own solo record. After all these years, he was still a student, still learning, still making his way through those chambers, acquiring skills one by one. And there was no rush. He wanted to wait until he was ready. And when he finally was ready, every other member of Wu-Tang had already released a solo album. Master Killa's debut, No Said Date, dropped on June 1st, 2004. In many ways, it was a return to the old school feel of Wu-Tang's first record. It featured most of the clan and guest spots. It had RZA's dusty production. It caught many people by surprise, including critics who loved it. And despite underestimating Master Killa as one of the quote-unquote lesser MCs in the clan for years. No said date was Master Killa's 36th chamber. He took everything that he had learned and he put it into one package and then delivered that to the masses and his vengeance paid dividends. If you slept on Master Killa, on guard, motherfucker, his Wu-Tang sword was sharp and swift. His style came at you like three guys in trench coats making a beeline towards you outside Sparks as you got out of your Lincoln. People noticed. Well, not everyone. For some, Master Killa and Wu-Tang simply weren't worth the effort anymore. Federal Bureau of Investigation, Precedence, Routine, Date, 7-12-2004, to New York, from New York, Case ID Number, 281F-NY-27147, Title, Wu-Tang Clan, Synopsis, to Close Case, Number 281F-NY-27147, Details. It is requested that the above captioned case be closed as the matter is being investigated by Squad C30 SA Case File Number 267C NY 269537, and all further references should be directed to the 267C case. In the summer of 2004, just one month after Master Killer released his solo debut album, No Said Date, the FBI officially closed its 281F case file on Wu-Tang Clan. And no, 281F is not a reference to the license plate of the VW Beetle on the cover of Abbey Road that allegedly offered up a clue into Paul McCartney's supposed death, but I digress. In this case, 281F is a classification code used by the federal government to denote a quote-unquote major criminal organization. 281F was typically reserved for organized crime families like the aforementioned Gambinos, but since 1999 had been applied to Wu-Tang, 
who the feds were convinced were using their business as a front for running guns, dealing drugs, and ordering murders. But despite any guns purchased or people killed or evidence supplied by informants of guns purchased and people killed, there was never enough to nail anyone in Wu-Tang. As the Bureau's internal memo stated, any further investigation of Wu-Tang was now the purview of the New York FBI's Squad C-30, which was tasked with violent street gangs. In retrospect, the timing of the closing of Wu-Tang's FBI file seems, if not suspicious, more than a little coincidental. Not because it happened around the same time that the group's most discreet member made his solo debut, but because it happened just months before the group's most infamous member made his exit. Old Dirty Bastard was paranoid. The government was nothing but a bunch of thugs. Doctors were, too. Doctors wanted to stick his baby's thighs with needles and shoot God knows what inside them before they could even walk. Fuck that. Dirty wasn't letting any doctors control his baby's brains. No tracking devices injected into his children. He had to stay safe. He had to stay vigilant. Just because he hadn't been murdered at Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora didn't mean the NYPD and the ATF and the FBI didn't want him dead. And just like he had no way of knowing what was really inside those immunization shots, he had no way of knowing what the FBI's status was in regards to their pursuit of him and Wu-Tang. No one knew. At this time in 2004, the FBI's internal memos were still very internal and still very classified and they wouldn't be seen by the public for another eight years in 2012 when the government released a 95-page file on ODB and Wu-Tang Clan in response to FOIA requests. For now, Dirty had to protect number one, which meant stocking up. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of spy gear, courtesy of the RZA's checkbook. Glasses with a camera installed in them, a phone scrambler, monitoring equipment that would make James Comey cream his pants. In Dirty's mind, the feds had fucked him. They were complicit. They put him in Danamora, in that godforsaken place they called Little Siberia. Little Siberia was where he was beaten and burned. It was where his leg was broken. And that leg was still a mess. During a show in Fort Collins, Colorado, Dirty fell from the stage and landed on that same leg. It hurt. It hurt so bad that he thought he'd broken it all over again. But he didn't cancel the show the next night in Vail. Thank you to the wheelchair that was now carting his ass around and thank you to the cocaine that kept him numb in all the right places. The coke did the trick. The coke kept him in Vail, in his hotel room, instead of getting him on a plane to Jersey for a show the next day at the Meadowlands with the rest of the Wu-Tang Clan. The day after that show, however, on November 13th, 2004, Dirty was back in NYC. He still felt like shit and his legs still ached. God, it was awful, excruciating, so much pain. The pain reminded him of Little Siberia, and that reminded him of the feds asking him questions and the NYPD shooting at his car and then blaming him for it. He wrapped his leg in an ace bandage, did whatever was necessary to dull the pain. And so he put an entire dime bag of cocaine in his mouth and swallowed it. He went to a studio in Manhattan to work on tracks for his new solo album the one he was making for Rockefeller Records. The bag of coke in his stomach worked harder than he did. His heart pounded. He was hot and sweaty, but the pain in his leg was getting worse. So he took a tramadol, a prescription painkiller. 
He peeled off his shirt and drank some water, and he lay down and fell asleep. He woke up and ate some cereal. He was still sweating, and his heart was still racing. Someone at the studio suggested he go to a doctor. Never. That was how they got you. Dirty wasn't about to let them get him. So he lay back down on the floor and fell asleep again. He never woke up. The tramadol and the cocaine proved a lethal combination. It stopped his heart. Old Dirty Bastard, AKA Dirt McGirt, AKA Big Baby Jesus, AKA Rusty to his mother, was dead just two days before his 36th birthday. That number, 36, the significance was not lost on anyone. There were the 36 chambers, and there was Supreme Mathematics, which said that three plus six is nine, and nine, of course, is the only number which, when multiplied by itself, still ends up the same number. Nine times nine is 81, and eight plus one is nine. Nine means to be born, nine, bring something into existence. But Dirty missed the cutoff for nine. So Dirty didn't see what happened next, but he could have predicted it. In fact, he probably did predict it while he was alive. Because just when Wu-Tang Clan thought that the FBI had left them alone for good, new evidence turned up that put them right back in the government spotlight. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Disgraceland is to be continued. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.